Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Aubrey Chavez from Faith Matters. To give a little background on today's episode, we recently read a book called A Short Stay in Hell by Stephen Peck, who's a professor of biology and bioethics at BYU and an award-winning fiction author. The book is a remarkable and frankly terrifying exploration of a concept of hell that calls into question the very natures of eternity, meaning, and relationship. As we talked with each other about this book, we realized that exploring the Latter-day Saint concept of hell in relationship to other hell theologies would be really fascinating. But more importantly, as Steve's book indicated, it would provide an opportunity for us to dive deep on what we mean when we say eternity and what our unique faith tradition has to teach us and share with the world about the nature of an endlessly loving God, life after death, and human potential. So we asked Steve to join us and talk a little bit about his book, and we brought Tarot Givens on as an additional conversation partner to help round out some of these concepts, especially in light of Christian and Latter-day Saint tradition. And yes, if you're wondering, we thought that Halloween was the perfect day to release this episode. We hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as we did, and with that, we'll jump right in. Well, Steve and Terrell, thank you guys so much for joining us on the on the podcast today. Sure, happy Halloween. Yes, yeah, and I was right. that reminds me. I was uh, I, I'll start by saying we're going to refrain from most of the terrible puns that we have come up with over the over the course of this prep. But I, I will wish all of our listeners a happy Halloween to get started. Okay. Right on. Okay, we can Excellent. cut that. Um, but Terrell, maybe I should note to start that you you dress up for this uh, for this episode. Yes, I, I did. This is this is deliberate. This is in honor of my wife who has very concrete expectations regarding hell. Okay. We're going to be greeted by suited, white-shirted men bedecked with ties uh, who call themselves ministering angels. And then we're going to be ushered into a worthiness interview. And so uh, this is a celestial rather than yeah, hellish okay. color. Okay. Otherwise. Okay. Well, thank you for, thank you for explaining that. Um, so to, to give a little bit of context about where we hope this conversation goes, um, Aubrey and I a month ago or so read Steve's book, A Short Stay in Hell, and it got us it got us thinking about um, all things hell, really. And we thought that this, in this conversation, we could sort of use the book as a bit of a backdrop, at least for for a portion of it. Um, but also, you know, Latter Day Saint theology has a very distinct um, concept concept of hell, a potentially more gen- generous one. And we thought it'd be interesting too to sort of round up a little bit of uh, Christian hell theologies and see sort of where we where we land in that landscape. Um, so to start, if, if Steve, it's, if it's okay, if I direct a question at you, sure. Um, we'd, we'd love to talk about, about the book, which you brought, uh, at least briefly. Um, it is one of the most existentially terrifying things that I've ever read. And I say that all seriousness and that's a compliment. Uh, to <laughs> you. Um, but could you, maybe, maybe you could share the, the premise of the book. So people sort of know what we're talking about and what, I don't know if inspired is the right word, but what encouraged you to, uh, to write this? Uh, it, 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 it has its, its genesis in um, uh, Jorge Borges' st- short story, The Library of Babel. And I was reading his original short story that, that he describes this library that contains every book that's possible to be written. And I started thinking about that. I thought, oh, 
that would include a book of all L's and a book of L's that end in G. And I, and I, and I started to think about that and I started to feel like this would really be hell. And I, I have a background in, in, in math. And I started to think about how many books that would be. And I realized that it would be unlikely that you'd ever find a book of coherent text in a long, long time. This it's a finite number. There's a finite number of books in the library of Babel, but the library is so vast. There's no way that you'd ever find anything in an almost finite right. impression. And it started haunting me the same way you experienced. <laughs> I couldn't quit thinking about it. And then I just thought I've got to write this down. And it, it started as me trying to work through what it means to live eternally. And it, it, it wasn't as happy a thought as I thought. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. You, uh, you talk about in the book how, um, I mean, just in the very introduction to the book, uh, the protagonist talks about how there's the rise and fall of many universes in the time that he's been in the library. And it's, it's incomprehensible to us to even understand how long our own universe has been in existence. I think right. 13 billion years or yeah. whatever. We can't understand that. Yeah. But that's just a, you know, just a tiny sliver of time. Yeah. Um, compared to what, uh, the, the length that he's, he's explored. Um, it's just, and it's just fascinating. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I don't want to make it sound like you know, this is, this is such a cool book because it's a terrifying <laughs> book for me as well. It haunted me. Yeah. It still haunts me. And anytime somebody says in, in Sunday school, for example, we get to live together forever. Right. It's this. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a long time. Yeah. And, and as the book depicts, even this finite time is so vast, it's incomprehensible. So. Yeah, that's right. And we we were talking about how, you know, this is kind of I, this is a word I think I've used very flippantly, like it is a comforting thing. Eternity, there's no death. And like that, that's always been such a positive thing. And this is the first time I started to really, I think, just accept that that is completely like eternity is totally incomprehensible. I just I can't even I really can't wrap my mind around eternity. There's this moment where the character is falling through the library for just thousands and thousands of years falling and and never is hitting the bottom and 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 even then it's like he's still he's not even in eternity you know he's not in an infinite number of books he's just there it's just a big big number and even that is nothing compared to infinity and that is just mind blowing and, that, and that's, scary that, that's right and and in 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 those scenes i think is where it really hit me where they you, you you both know he's not going to hit the bottom and you know he has to at some point, but it's a long ways down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and that, 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 that quest needs to be yeah. abandoned. You know, we, it may be right. helpful to frame this whole conversation and the concept of eternity by pointing out that for most of Christian history, that hasn't been a problem because eternity, right? is non-temporal. It's non-linear. And so God and the spirit exist outside of time. So they don't really have to confront that, right? That possibility of endless duration. There's a wonderful moment in, in Paralandra. I think that's C.S. Lewis's best novel where he, he encounters an angel who's been waiting for him. And he, he asks him something about 
of waiting. And he says, well, we don't wait. We, we don't experience time like that, right? That's yeah. a human experience. But B.H. Roberts was maybe the first to explicitly define eternity as just endless time. Mm, really? Yeah. Did you consider not using time in, in the sense that we think about it with seconds and minutes? And I, I, I didn't because I, 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 I buy that viewpoint that, that we and, and some physicists now are, are making this claim as well. We, 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 I, I, I guess for me, timelessness is in that sense, in the, in the, the Augustinian sense is, is nonsensical in a way. Um, what does it mean not to be time, especially from a, a, a Latter-day Saint viewpoint where we, um, we, we have a before and an after we have a moment, we have moments in the eternities that we refer to and we refer to after and you get this sense that there is a continuation. And so I don't know, I, I, I don't know what that would mean. Time, timelessness. Mm -hmm. If, right. if, 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 if at any time you decided to raise your hand, that would be motion. And so, uh, so Terrell's exactly right, I think. I think that, that that is part of our theology is this idea of a, a deep time. And for me, that's, that's part of what I think we can we can come come back to this but i think i think there's some rescue here in our theology that that makes eternity in a way possible that's not the standard way i mean in the, this book i don't depict that yeah <laughs> but, yeah but, yeah Let, you, yeah let's talk about that can we talk about just our our latter day saint theology about hell because i think this is a little bit fuzzy in people's mind like are we talking about outer darkness or are we talking about some sort of purgatory or you know what what is our theology on hell and is it stable like has it always been the same i, I I'll, I'll defer to terrell because i actually quote him in some other works that just came out. And so I'll, 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 I'll okay. let Carol explain this. Well, I don't know if there ever has been or even is a stable theology of, of hell. Uh, I think that we have some important scriptures through which we should be filtering our theology of hell. And I don't think that mm. that's been done mm. um, in, a, in a sufficient way. I mean, I'm thinking of two scriptures in particular, right, that have seems to me tremendous bearing on the question of hell. One is DNC 124, uh, right? Pretty important revelation, right? It's framing the, the, the restoration and talking about revelation in scripture. The Lord says these commandments have been given according to the weakness of men after the manner of their language. Mm. So if you think mm. of those two things together, right? We get scripture, we get God's voice According to our weak, it's fitted to our weakness, and it's after our language, not after God's language. It's framed in our language, right? And then that principle is reaffirmed in the NC nineteen seven, right, where God kind of plays those word games, where He says, "Well, yeah, I've been saying eternal and endless, but that's just to work upon the hearts of the children right. of men." Yeah. So it seems to me that hell suddenly becomes a much more malleable concept in in light of, of that. So. Um, one way of getting to this question, what is the eternal status of hell, right, is to ask, well, are we fixed in a particular degree of glory or salvation after mm -hmm. after death? And of course, the church has gone back and forth, and official answer to that is we don't have an official answer to that. So 
I think that um, uh, just one other kind of point of triangulation would be Lehi's vision of the tree of life. Uh, we, we like, as Latter-day Saints, to find a degree of reassurance and stability in this notion of the rod of iron. You, you know. But consider the fact that Lehi sees those people who have reached the tree of life, who have partaken of the fruit, and then they wander off. And that reminds me of what Hiram said about post-mortal life. He said, post-mortal life will be like the moon. It waxes and wanes. Hmm. So there's this sense of eternal, right, dynamic flexibility in terms of where we go, we can regress, we can progress. And so I think the only thing we can say for certain, it seems to me, is that there are lots of good bases in our theology for doubting that there is an, an endless duration to a state of torment. Yeah. In That's a, so interesting, yeah. In Christianity, I think, uh, especially Protestant Christianity in America, even today, I think there is a fairly prominent idea that there is a state of, of eternal conscious torment. Um, I'm, I guess I'm curious, uh, could you, could you maybe talk about the context in which Joseph Smith was, was working when he sort of <clears throat> began to develop or, you know, receive, uh, to some extent, hell, hell theology? Yeah. Well, he's coming out of a largely Protestant tradition and the, the, the two dominant religious, um, traditions in his particular day are the Methodist faith, right? Founded by Jonathan, John Wesley, and the Presbyterian faith, which is starting to enter a period of, of decline. The, the main point of contention between those traditions has to do with the degree of free will in, in our own salvation, kind of place of grace and, and, and choice. But, and, and also the degree to which we are consigned to a punishment as a consequence of original guilt, right? The Methodists are mm -hmm. starting to move away from the concept of original guilt. But I don't see that there's any serious disputing the notion of a hell, except for another tradition which is lurking there in the background, which is right, Unitarianism or Universalism. And of course, Joseph Smith is very much steeped in this. His, his, his father, his grandfather, very much steeped in the Universalist tradition. And uh, I think it's, it's clear from reading some of Joseph Smith's texts, especially Section 19, that he's been reading Charles Chauncey and other Universalists on the question really? of eternal torment. You can find some of the identical language because it's a Universalist who first uses the analogy we find in Section 19, where he says, well, the heat of the candle might be an eternal heat, but the candle isn't eternal. So there's not an eternal mm. right, suffering associated with that. And that seems to be adapted by by Joseph Smith. But there's there's beginning to set in, uh, in, 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 in what will be the foundations of liberal Protestantism, right? A kind of repugnance toward a God who would just consign anybody to eternal torment on the basis of a few years of, of mortal probation. So I think Joseph Smith is, is very much in tune with that and influenced by it. Yeah. So what do you, so this feels like this is still kind of the debate in broader Christianity. Are we talking about universal reconciliation or, or eternal conscious torment or annihilationism? So, so what do you see in, in restoration of scripture or in modern prophets that makes a case for something other than, I mean, well, I guess, do you have scripture to back up reconciliation? Cause I, like, I, I feel like there's yeah, still a way yeah. you could read DNC 19 and say, okay, well, they won't be tortured forever, but like they may cease right, to exist. Right. You know, I think the answer to that is the exact same answer that we get from this novelist sitting next to me, <laughs> which is right. We want some kind of a resolution at the end, right? Yes. Because there's, there's the, the sense that there's right a modicum of hope that is there that eventually these characters can find their life story and thus unlock the key to escape. 
But section 76 ends just like his novel, right? Where referring to the sons of perdition, it, it leaves us with these cryptic Halloweenish words, right? The end thereof, no man knoweth. Hmm. Yeah. So it's deliberately thrown into hmm. the realm of uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a good point. Good yeah, point. that's interesting. <laughs> I think um, we were speaking with a evangelical pastor a couple of months ago, and he was sort of giving us their concept of hell. It, it sounded like in his church in particular, they sort of reject um, eternal conscious torment. And he was asking us what, what we believed. And I was sort of proud to say, I, I think I even used the words, we don't believe in hell because like in a sense, you know, we, we mostly for the, you know, for the most part. Not brimstone, not, you know. Not, yeah. yeah. Um, and I was feeling really proud of that. Um, but like, uh, I think a traditional reading or a, a, a current sort of standard reading rather of DNC 19 might say that, okay, so uh, what God is saying there is that it's not eternal punishment or endless punishment in the sense that it goes on forever, but in the sense that it's, that it's suffering like Christ suffered because eternal and endless is, is his name. Right. right. And I think. And this is probably very much like a millennial and, and Gen Z type of thing. But like, I think there's some discomfort even around the idea that God would punish uh, to that extent. Um, for any amount of time. For any I mean, Okay, time. not eternally, but like just a torturing, yeah. caring God. Yeah. And part of that disturbing. comes like, it, I think it can disturb people like imagining that God does it to us or even that God did it to Jesus, you know, as part of as part of the atonement. Yeah. And I, I want to give you more time to talk, yeah. but, but, but it strikes me there's a tr tremendously relevant um, news item <clears throat> that's occurred just in, in the past few days with regard to this concept of retributive justice, punitive legalistic justice, right? The church issued us uh, press releases regarding the new version of the General Handbook of Instructions. And in the language of that release, as I read it, it said specifically, an attempt was made to remove all legalistic language hmm. wow. from the handbook of instructions. So we don't have disciplinary councils anymore, for example. But that was one of many, many examples. <clears throat> and so I think that this is an incredibly healthy development with tremendous possibilities because I think Christianity and Frances Young, she's a great theologian and in the UK, and I had a brief exchange with her in, in which she agreed with my take that early in Christian history, a road was taken in the direction of legal interpretations of the atonement and salvation rather than compassionate and more medicinal kinds of. In other words, is Christ rescuing us from punishment or is he healing us from, from mm -hmm. a, a kind of, of woundedness? So it seems to me that Christianity is really opening up now to that latter alternative. And we're beginning in the church as well, I hope, to purge ourselves of this notion of a retributive justice. Because I think the Book of Mormon gives us a, a, an ample theological framework for radically reconceptualizing justice. When it describes justice as the law of restoration, we're restored to what we choose. There's no punisher in yeah. that law of, of restoration as, as I read the Book of Mormon. So, yeah. And not to push back too hard here, but in DNC 19, how do you how do you deal with the word punishment that is that is used? Well, I think that from our perspective, that's precisely what it looks like. Oh, okay. This goes back to what you're saying. God's using our language. Exactly. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, there's a natural law of cause and effect, choice and consequence. But because those two are often obscured by time or, or, or white noise, 
we just assume that any negative right is a punishment right. when there was a, a violation of the law. But, you know, and here I think, you know, we can go back to, I, I love Dante's Inferno, right? Undoubtedly one of the greatest works of, of Western literature. And the most remarkable thing about his medieval Catholic conception of hell, God is nowhere present. He doesn't need to be there. He's not dispensing punishment. Every single torment is experienced is the natural unfolding of choices that that person made. And I think that's a, that's a wonderful, healthy, and more morally and intellectually plausible conception. Of yeah. So I, I wonder about that. I was, um, I'm thinking of C.S. Lewis who talks about locking the door. Hell is the door is locked from the inside or something like that yeah. in the great divorce. So I'm, I'm wondering though, like, are we, are, are you imagining that this is real suffering there or that there, I mean, I feel like if there's an element of choice and they're choosing to be in this group of like-minded people, then that would, you would feel comfortable there and it wouldn't be a hell so much. So are you imagining actual suffering in this, in this kind of, this I, kind of I'd place? I'd like to get Steve's take on this, but I think section 88, at least in my own kind of theological universe, that's, that's the key that unlocks the relationship between joy and suffering. I think there is something metaphysically, spiritually real about the light of Christ that emanates mm. from the divine. And that when we are bathed in that, we flourish and are happy to the fullest extent of our capacity as divine beings. And when we are removed from that, we are alienated from the source of all that is good and rich and, and promotes our thriving. And I think also that we can only enter into the fullness of human relationality when we are living moral precepts consistent with those eternal relations. Yeah. Steve, I was, thoughts? Yeah, no, I, 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 I love the idea that, that you've just expressed. I mean, I love the idea that, that there's no imposition of punishment. There's that, that it's not a, um, a doling out of punishment. And in fact, um, I really like that you brought up C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, that, that, that sense that, that God is trying to pull them out of sort of their, their, their locked in view of the world, because that's what I think is the way we punish ourselves. I mean, in a sense, that refusal of love, that refusal of 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 what god's offering is where we ourselves become damned mm -hmm. in in that sense is is that we we miss the what i think is is the most important feature of the eternities and this is this is my kind of um this this is this comes out of my evolutionary biology mm -hmm. <laughs> it's the idea of radical creativity and novelty and the opportunity for growth and that's where this version of hell is so awful is yeah. there is no opportunity i feel like that what was was beautiful about joseph smith's ideas about uh, continued sociality was that that we have the opportunity to create an eternity that's our our chance that's our 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 what what that that's what escapes any, any eternity 
that has this, no matter how good it is, no matter how, how good it is. And this, this came from a, a, a friend of mine, uh, that, that said, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd name him, but I don't necessarily <laughs> want to embarrass him. With um, but he said, he said, you know, the, the, the right idea here is not to go on the quest of the book that you, instead of taking the assignment, you give up, you give up. It's impossible. It's an impossible task. And so you create a world, you create a, a sociality, you, you create like they were starting in the beginning to, to create the university. You take that to the next step is where you just say, no, I, we, we are going to create heaven here. Yeah. Joseph mm. Smith says this, we're going to create that heaven sounds here. Like some That's the question something. I wanted to ask you yeah. about this book is, is, is would one valid reading of this book be that, well, this place isn't really hell. Mm-hmm. It isn't anything. It's a neutral ground Yeah, that they interpret. And so I, that's why I love the motif of the library and the books, because it's all about interpretation, right? And we right. have these crazy, wild interpretations, these fragmentary, right? Yeah. Um, um, letter strings. Yeah. And yet it seems to me that a library represents infinite possibility, right? Right. And the relationships that, that rise and fall and disintegrate. Um, and yet you seem to be rather despairing as an authorial voice about the possibility of durable relationships. And I think that's because I, and, and this is one thing that, that, that they point out, if there's nothing to hope for, there's nothing to base a relationship on. It, it, it turns into this kind of static boringness, um, which I don't think is necessary because I think that's our opportunity to create these universes where where relationships can become stable where 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 what we want is a radical notion of of flourishing mm-hmm. and and to build build these kinds of relationships to build the kind of relationships that 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 buy into making a new world and this is this is what, kind of what I'm, I'm i'm thinking about in evolution you start off with these single cell organisms and all of a sudden you get new creatures and flying things and swimming things and all these things begin to appear and then they begin to diversify and to to but in unpredictable ways right right exactly because it seems to me that your your book is also an implicit argument for your theological construct pertaining to god's omniscience and omnipotence both both of which you think has to be limited Yes. There has to be a sense yes. in which God is an explorer, yes. a creator, a discoverer. Yes. And the unanticipated and the unplanned, the unexpected has to be part of an emergent yes. universe. Right. Or any heaven will end up like this hell. Yeah. Right. And and this is this is um I I I I wrote this little thing for Phil Barlow's book, and it begins and God calls us to to adventure, and then Elder Ubdor mm. also said it. So, <laughs> but it this, has to be right. yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I this was this was the most challenging part for for me for your book that especially in the end it's just it is so sad that he talks about how you know occasionally every few 
billion years or so, he'll meet another person and they'll, they may spend a billion years together. And then eventually they've said everything they could say, and then they wander off. And it, like, that was just, it's heartbreaking and terrifying because yeah. that feels so much like how I have defined heaven, you know, like being with, being with the one I love forever and ever. And, and so it was scary to imagine that could you, I mean, he's great, but eternity. Let's be honest. But like, I, you know, I want to believe that that would that in itself, like being with your family, that that is that 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 yeah would be sufficient all by itself. And and Terrell, I've always loved the way you talk about you know heaven and hell not necessarily being places, but it is the sociality. And so it's scary to imagine that eternity could exhaust those relationships. And I don't think they necessarily need to. I think that this idea of an eternal adventure together is completely possible. The idea if, if eternal life is, 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 is just doing the same thing you've mm -hmm. always done yeah. over and over and over again, that's not a productive eternal life. I yeah. think that misses the, 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 the genuine capability of what an eternal outpouring of creativity can be yeah yeah and 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 for, so for me that doesn't um this isn't this my book isn't an argument for this right yeah. <laughs> this is actually a, a a a rebellion and i guess in some ways i'm i'm reacting to the notion of eternal life is just internal increase that's just you know the object yeah. right. is to 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 create a vat full of of, of spirit children, spiritual, spiritual, yeah. children. Um, I think that, that what God does is, is responds to the moment. He creates, uh, opportunities and takes opportunities. I, I think that this idea of, of God, um, uh, being and being and, and, and wildly creative. That's I, when mm -hmm. I think of God, I don't think wildly creative in the same sense of, as, um, I don't know, just, just, just God, um, uh, I, I would call it, a a, a, a kind of fake creativity where everything's locked in right. already. The possibilities are locked in, mm -hmm. but I, I think of God as radically creative in that. And, and this is, this is true of what I see in the universe At one time in the universe that it was really boring. There was, there was helium. I mean, hydrogen. There was hydrogen everywhere. I know it's hydrogen. And if you were an early explorer, and you and you and you looked around the universe, and it's all hydrogen, you'd say, "Well, this is about as far as the universe can go." It can, and and then suns start to create helium, and 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 you'd think, "Well, wow, who saw that coming?" And all of a sudden, as things begin to collapse and explode it becomes a very productive universe that becomes unpredictable it becomes mm -hmm. uh and at, at every moment along you'd you'd think as an observer wow this is as far as it can go we've got heavy metals wow that is so cool <laughs> and but you let the process run and you watch the process and all of a sudden you're in a place where there's a, a such thing as giraffes and whales and this is i think of, of job when when God appears and says, I mean, you read Job and you get this sense that God is just amazed 
have you considered the whales? Wow, that is so cool. That is just amazing. Oh, yeah, that, you know, can you make one? I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's this, it's this, this idea that a universe is unfolding and, and that's what eternity is. It's this recombination. It's this new things that appear that, that are not necessarily just a script from a play, mm-hmm. yeah. but rather it's this idea that that eternity might be really, really cool. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, yeah. Another another element here may be a requirement for a certain degree of faith. God seems to be having a pretty good time. Yeah. So I'm going to take His word for it. That's it's yeah. it's, it's worth joining Him. And go ahead, Steve. Oh, I was just going to say I love that because. What always I couldn't get my head around was we spend a lot of time working on hope and faith and charity. And it seems like that wouldn't be necessary. And I think we will have that one down. And yet, I don't think so. I think hope is a part of God's eternal uh, attributes. Yeah. I think yeah. faith is a part of God's eternal attributes. I think all charity is special. <laughs> but, um, but this idea... That we spend so much time on something that seems like, uh, or this is the way I thought about it. Not everybody probably thinks of this, but for me, for me, what I kept thinking as a missionary when I was young, you know, we work on faith and hope and charity, but we won't, that won't be in the next life. We'll be, we'll have that. You, yeah. What do you hope for if you're in the celestial kingdom? Right. What do you have faith in if you're in the celestial kingdom? Well, I think it's an attribute of God too. That these ideas are, <laughs> I keep, um, I, I, I keep thinking that that that, that that's right. Mm-hmm. These these are these are as Terrell just said. These these ideas are not empty of God's attributes as well. We're learning yeah. faith and hope and charity because yeah, that's part of yeah. the, what will enable us to become radically yeah. creative. And and we need to have, as I just said, we need to have faith yeah. there as well. I think you guys, you guys have me convinced that genuine novelty does seem to be a prerequisite sort of for, for meaning in the, uh, in the eternities mm-hmm. that implies, I think like you're saying, Terrell, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but that there, there is a God who can be genuinely surprised. And there's a, there's a little voice in my head, which is pushback that I've heard on this before that you cannot both believe in a God that can be genuinely surprised and put complete trust in that God because the unexpected still may still may happen yeah. the, the only thing that you can put your complete trust in is is something that has the outcome every outcome every possible outcome figured out so how, how, how would you respond to that i don't think there's any better answer than the one that was given to david by david paulson i think he was our premier philosopher of the last you know 50 or 100 years and he was asked that i think by an evangelical and his response was well i have faith in his capacity to save me because he tells me i can Hmm. And uh, I don't think God would give us false hope in that regard. So clearly he knows enough to guarantee. And I, I think it, it, re- it reminds me of that verse in, is it section 121, where, where God says their bounds are set. There are certain constraints and limitations um, that allow God to have a certain mastery of the possibilities. Yeah. I think one of my favorite lines of your 
book, Steve, was something like the that anticipation is the most exquisite expression of hope or something like that. And mm-hmm. and I I realized I think that, that that is what was so demoralizing about this hell. It was just this endless monotony with nothing to look forward to. But but that's also what what stays with you after you read the book, that, that that's what's scary. Like, could you, can you really have hope and anticipation without limits? And I, I, maybe this is what, what you're saying, but like, is it, is it even possible to create meaning if there's no end? Because doesn't eternity necessarily imply that eventually everything is repetition and it can't be new? This is where I, we could reframe it in terms of a, what seems to me a paradox, right? Mm-hmm. That on the one hand, if we have a finite universe and there are, is a finite number of particles in that universe, no matter how vast. There are only a certain number of possible configurations. And the time will come when every configuration will have been realized. And therefore, at that point, there can only be repetition. Mm-hmm. So that's on one side of the ledger. But on the other side of the ledger, I'm saying, yeah, but what about, as, as you mentioned, time itself continues to unfold. Every experience will have a different value. Mm-hmm. And I could count infinitely. And that enumeration would be new. So I'm not sure how you reconcile those, those two. No, I and and, and I, th- I think this this comes out of, um, like like uh, Laplace's demon, this 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 notion that if you knew every particle's momentum and trajectory, uh, then you'd be able to predict all the future and all the past from, from that. And so what what I see kind of unfolding in in modern physics is a rejection of that. And this is how I, I, I would answer that, I think, is that we don't know what those configurations do to the universe itself. So that, as I was describing, if you had a... a, a um, it's not a static. Right, right. And we, and we see this potential quantum mechanics that particles are coming and going and mm-hmm. and and new configurations might be be possible so that as things continue to unfold or we continue to unfold or we continue we 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 join into the to the unfolding of 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 the way things are is that you you main the, the, the universe may still have surprises for us and it, it may be, uh, I, I mean, I, I think about what we we now in in like the particles accelerated. We think we smash things together in ways that are impossible in on the the universe on its own, and so somehow. Uh, a new thing appeared in the, the 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 universe, which is particle accelerators, which do things that were impossible in the universe. And I don't know what the limits are to that. I don't know, you know, when when we join the equation, or when when the universe expands beyond a certain point, if all of a sudden things be okay, that's different. a really interesting answer. So that that seems to me to be related to the, the notion of the emergence. Uh-huh. Yes. So if emergence, in other words, new entities achieve right, an ontological reality, yeah. so suddenly the constituents of the universe are different. Right. So even if the universe weren't expanding, which it very well may be, we still have an endless 
proliferation of configurations, each of one of which possibilities, you know. Right. And brings mm-hmm. new, that whole new, a new picture into the universe. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Problem. Yeah. <laughs> We're good. Yeah. Right. Um, if it's okay, let's talk, let's talk a little bit um, about sort of a, a standard Latter-day Saint theology in which, um, in, in my opinion, heaven can very easily become hell. And that is where, Terrell, you've described heaven, again, like we've talked about, as being in relationship, being in sociality with, with one another. I think, I think it's still a, a fairly to very mainstream view that um, kingdom of glory, that the kingdom of glory to which you've been assigned is static. And therefore, if let's say you've done whatever, you know, merits a celestial glory and your loved ones have done those things, which do not, which merits something else, then the eternal separation, uh, at least in your dwelling place does become a sort of hell. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I I don't think we can in any meaningful sense believe that God is going to wipe away all tears if eternal separation from loved ones is is going to be likely. Um, So we know, uh, I think one of the most interesting moments in the history of this idea of of a dynamic hereafter was in around the turn of the century, around 1900, when James Talmadge is publishing his Articles of Faith and the question of progression through the kingdoms is addressed. And in his first edition, his manuscript version, he said that there is no progression through the kingdoms. And the Apostolic Oversight Committee rejected that view. And really? In, and, and told him he needed to change it. And so he did. So in the first several editions of the Articles of Faith, he emphatically, clearly states there is progression through the kingdoms. Later, oh. composition is different. And... Uh, the balance of opinion seems to shift. And so it's the 13th or 12th edition where he, where he changes that. Um, yeah, I, I think, to my mind, one of the most interesting things Joseph Smith ever said about relationality in heaven is this. He said, if you have no accusers, you will enter heaven. And that's to flip things 180 degrees, right? He's not saying if nobody, if, if you don't accuse anybody, if you're not judgmental, if you're not uncharitable, he says, if anybody has any grievance against you, even if it's unjust, you're denied heaven. So that is to equate heaven with perfect relationality. And so that tells me that it has to be a work that is continually in progress. It's continually evolving and shifting. And, and, uh, but that we obviously can't uh, delimit, it seems to me, our growth in the future if human relationships are always at the core of that. Yeah. yeah. Do you think there's anything to be lost for, for someone who feels threatened by that idea? What, what do you think, what do you think it is that makes that, that makes you feel nervous yeah, yeah. about, about this idea that you could progress? Like what, what is there to be lost by, uh, I by think accepting that? Well, I, I think the Lord very well recognized why people have a problem with that. And that's why he gave us the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. I mean, it seems to me that there's no other way of interpreting that, right? The guy comes at six o'clock in the morning. He works all day. Guy comes just before sunset and he gets paid the same wage and he's indignant. What else could that apply to? If not that, I call it the Jonah complex, right? I paid the price. I want to see Nineveh burn. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, the medical profession where I had to work 48 hour shifts. You're going to work 48, right? right yeah. So we perpetuate these forms of torment 
because we feel we paid our dues and everybody else has to too. So I just think it's yeah. a basic carnal instinct. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. We've talked a little bit about how it seems like throughout the ages, heaven has sort of always been a reflection of what what people needed or wanted most. So it was a clean place or the streets were covered with gold or they were rich or they could rest. And and now we kind of talk about heaven like it's this place of ultimate connection and we'll be with family. And and so is there any is there an extent to which you you see us doing that with hell? Like is this becoming a reflection of our generation that we've now created this hell where the ultimate punishment is disconnection. And yeah, is that just yeah. because that's what we want most? And so that's the worst thing we can imagine. We're not thinking about, you know, burning at a stake or or a, an early death. Like maybe that maybe that fear has passed and what is most present now is just serious eternal disconnection. Well, that would be, a, that would be an excellent secularist explanation of how this construction <laughs> yeah. of heaven varies through time. And I think there's no question that, that heaven and hell have been largely culturally constructed. Think about what hell was for Dante, right? Hell right. Was absolute yeah. freezing because nobody died of heat exhaustion. Yeah, right. They were all dying of cold, right? <laughs> and and but I would like to think that the restoration anticipates evolving human needs and currents in our culture. And I think, you know, to go back to Fiona's my beloved first Nephi 1332, right? Where the the angel describes a state of awful woundedness. So I'd like to think that there's prophetic and scriptural sanction for the belief that the greatest crisis our world and our communities face today is the disintegration of human bonds, and that that manifests itself as all kinds of psychic and emotional traumas. Yes, there is also sin, willful chosen sin, but the predominant wounds of our age seem to me the breakdown of relationality. And so I think it's appropriate, but also inspired that we understand heaven now in relational terms. Yeah, which you've brought up this irony before, but it, it's so interesting the way we often alienate the people we love most in the name of heaven and hell, and then and we create that for ourselves. Yeah, you know, in the in the here and now, it just I think that's maybe one reason why it's so important to flesh out this theology about heaven and hell in our own tradition because it really does affect how we treat the people we care about most right yeah. now. Yeah. And uh, I was having an interesting conversation just today with a colleague who we were talking about the, the family centeredness of our theology. And well, I do believe that the family is crucial and, and, and foundational, but it seems to me that what the brethren are rather gently trying to indicate to us in recent conferences is we can't stop at the family, Right. Relationality has to be about community and, and about political right uh, opposites and, and, and cultural divides. And so I think as long as we expand that notion of relationality beyond the family, I think we're yeah. on good ground. So what I, I have one thought about that, though, and Steve, maybe you have thoughts about this, too, because it's reminding me of the character at the beginning of the book who I think... Was it, who was it struck by lightning or someone just a oh, yeah, jerk of a guy while playing golf I and think. The, yeah, yeah and Christian. he's just like so annoying and like and and so sort of I wonder about like the converse of the situation like can it be heaven if you are with people I mean this that was a silly example in the book but you know like can you could it be heaven if you had to share it with someone who was depraved like someone who had made your actual life a, a hell like could could you I guess like is there some sort of place for like an eternal or heavenly schadenfreude like you know can it can you do you like are there some people that you will just feel like need to 
suffer or you, it wouldn't be heaven for you. If I can be personal, let me just share a very personal epiphany that I had some years okay. ago. And I, it, was, it was prompted by a talk in general conference about forgiveness and judgment. And, and, and there came this moment where I was thinking of this particular individual in my life that I just couldn't stand. And I just thought, God must really be irritated by this guy too. And then I had this moment right, of kind of <laughs> self-knowledge where I recognized, no, God loves him <laughs> and appreciates him and values him as much or more than yourself. And so extrapolating from that, I'm convinced that there's not going to be a moment. Because tell me you don't fantasize from time to time. You get in an argument or you, you can't, you know, and you just say, hey, you know, I'm going to be so glad when God stands before us and straightens you out. <laughs> there's never going to be a moment like that. Yeah. I don't think God is ever going to referee our conflicts. Mm. I think effectively he's going to put you in a room with that person and say, work it out. Okay, but what about like an abuser, like someone who is legitimately doing the work of evil? You know, like wh where is the reconciliation? Well, I don't think it's realistic or fair or, or appropriate for us to impose expectations about forgiveness, about the timetable of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And so I just have to trust that when the time is right and when both parties are ready, that mm. reconciliation can happen. But I don't think we need to labor under the burden that we need to achieve that kind of blanket forgiveness of those who have horribly abused and wronged us mm -hmm. in an, an immediate future. I think the Lord is patient. I think that's why he healed the blind man in two phases, right? Mm. Healing takes time. Yeah, I like that. All right. Um, maybe yeah. maybe to wrap up, um, I would I guess I would love to hear from both of you how your vision of hell, I mean what your vision of hell says about the God you worship. I can't actually imagine or I, I, I can't bring myself to believe in any kind of hell that does not buy into God's ability to heal mm. uh, whatever those wounds are. And, and uh, Terrell and Fiona have written a lot about this, and I, and I think that's right. I feel like that that's, I can't imagine worshiping a God that punished in that way. I can't imagine um, a God who... Uh, would would buy into that that kind of a system and I, I i i think for me the way that i think about it is that that it, it, it this 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 notion of god's infinite love that that that's why i can't um i can't imagine this i, I can't imagine an idea that doesn't partake of of that love and that 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 and I'm not thinking about it in terms of tough love or anything like that. I'm thinking about the 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 beauty of joining someone who loves me that much on an adventure and is is willing to risk risk me on that journey. I mean, the idea that 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 God can weep. That also means that that all these kinds of spontaneity God can partake of, dance, laughter, mm -hmm. 
and 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 laughter requires a genuine sense of of mirth which draws on surprise mm-hmm. and 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 draws on the on notions of of society that there's a shared environment and an, and a shared opportunity for surprise and so this idea of 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 god healing uh that Terrell's written so much uh, on with Fiona and um, this, this idea of, of really it being part of an adventure. And, and I don't think, I, I don't think I would want to leave anybody behind, but I've never known anybody. And these are just ordinary sorts of, of upfronts, mm-hmm. <laughs> the kind that I give all the time. <laughs> um, those, the kind of affronts that, 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 I've not ever sat down with anybody for very long, even if I didn't like them, that I journey with them a short way that I don't begin to appreciate where they're coming from and understand why they, they've, they've chosen the things that they've chosen. And I can't journey with people very long without that, yeah. that window opening to me. And again, this isn't about, about genuine evil. The, the, the notion that we have to forgive people automatically, that that's a part of, of our task. If we're not ready for it, as Terrell said, we, we, we need to let people heal at their own time because terrible things have been done to people. I've never known anybody at any depth that hasn't suffered. I really haven't. I get to know anybody at some level and all of a sudden their wounds appear. Yeah. And they, that becomes very clear that nobody escapes it. I, I've, I've never met anybody that, that I sat down with very long and said, yeah. you know, life has been so easy. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> gone well in every way. Nothing's, right. no, no, it's been right. good. Yeah. <laughs> right. I've never met anybody like that and I don't expect to. So that's, 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 that's my answer. I, yeah. I, I think a, a notion of hell that, that, um, doesn't include that kind of creativity. And then that's, I think the point of this book is eternity, if not an adventure, wears itself thin pretty quickly. Yeah. And that's not the kind of eternity I want. I, you know, our, our task is relationship. It is adventure. It is learning to love and the continuance of faith, hope and charity. Those, those three things triumph always. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. So, uh, I think one of the holiest minds that we have access to is the early 20th century Russian theologian Nikolai Berdyaev. And uh, here's one of the most profound and beautiful sentences I think ever framed. He said, Our moral sojourn begins as humans with. God asking Cain, where is your brother Abel? But it will end with God asking Abel, where is your brother Cain? Wow. Um, I don't think the Bible itself gives us a legitimate basis to feel strongly optimistic about the nature of God, which is why you have biblical scholars from Augustine to Calvin and beyond, who find a God of vengeance and wrath and and, uh, injustice. So where do we go? And I think uh, 
I think we go to the King Fala discourse. I think we go to the, the high point of restoration thinking where Joseph says, we have to begin in this setting where God looks upon his family, his peers, his fellow spirits of a lower station and wants to extend to them the opportunity to become like him. That's a very different beginning to the story. And I think it's not a coincidence that the Bible uses dozens of names for God, right? We get the Father of Lights and King of Kings, and we get Father. And, and so I think we're being invited to find the metaphor or the analogy that works most effectively for us. And it isn't parent for everybody. Uh, but I think we all ought to be able to relate to the metaphor of a master and an apprentice. And if we start with that relationship, that God is the master violinist, and he wants us to be able to play as beautifully as he, where does punishment fit into that view? Where does eternal hell fit into that paradigm? It doesn't. We might get what feels like punishment when we're made to redouble our efforts, and we might get chastisement, and we might have our fingering corrected, and and... But if he is the master and we're the apprentice, we have the grounds for believing that he only wants our good. And that if we submit ourselves to his direction, that we will achieve it. And in that conception of things, I don't find any place for a, a hell of punishment or vengeance. It's beautiful. That's, it is. Thank you. I love it. Thank you both so much. This is a I, this is honestly one of my favorite conversations I've ever had. So it's and been fun. Thank you for writing this book, Steve. Yeah. Thank yeah. you, Terrell, for all your work. It's, Appreciate it's both meant of you. to be a provocation. So. It, 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 it is. Yeah. It is certainly that. <laughs> <Just> that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks both. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Steve Peck and Terrell Gibbons. Steve's book, A Short Stay in Hell, is available on Amazon. And as always, if Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get the chance, we would love for you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. We read every review and it really helps us to get the word out about Faith Matters and we appreciate the support. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.